Hello, everyone, and welcome to our <clears throat> final session on spiritual warfare, where we're going to be talking about the devil. Just to re kind of uh, to cover the the old ground where we've come so far, we've been looking at the three principal enemies of humanity. So we've looked at the flesh, which is our fallen human nature, the world, which is all of those uh, who don't belong to the Lord and who are working across purposes to him. And now finally we come to the devil. So before we begin, we'll be, we'll start with a prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. St. Michael, the archangel defend us in the hour of conflict, be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God restrain and we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lady of Knock, pray for us. So, looking at the final of our spiritual enemies, the last of our spiritual enemies, the devil, uh, we want to, first of all, um, say about the devil that he exists. There are some people, even not only people sort of non-believers, but also people within the church who would like to make of the devil a kind of a fiction, who think that he's maybe a like a, a symbol for impersonal evil or the human capacity for wickedness or something like that. Um, but that's not true. Uh, the truth is that the devil is real. His existence is um, indicated in scripture both in the Old Testament and the New, in the New Testament. Um, Jesus, like one of his primary uh, works, one of his primary ministries was exorcism, was liberating people from the, uh, the possession and the, uh, the influence of the enemy, of the devil. Uh, and he's been also kind of a, a constant feature within the church's teaching as well. So the devil, first of all, the thing that we want to say is, the devil is real. Uh, who is he? Well, briefly, he is a fallen angel who was named Lucifer, who along with the other angels who fell, who are now called demons, uh, fell from heaven due to their pride. He wanted to be as God and independent of God. And we know this, one of the key passages there is from the prophet Isaiah chapter 14. The devil hates God and he hates mankind in a particular way, both as God's creation, but also as bearing the image of God in a unique way. When we're made in the image and likeness of God and he and the fallen angels now wage war against humanity. As the, uh, as the prayer to St. Michael, the archangel says, they prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Now, it is important uh, to say this as well about the devil and the fallen angels who are called demons. They're powerful angelic persons. Yes, powerful angelic persons. However, they are only creatures. They do not rival God whatsoever. Not in any way. It's not as though you have God on this kind of, on this hand, with his angels and then the devil in uh, on this hand with his angels and that the two forces are sort of like battling it out. These two equal forces in no way is that the case. God is the creator. God is omnipotent. 
He is utterly transcendent, and the devil is a creature. And all the demons are only creatures. They are nothing in comparison to God. Nothing. Uh, they do not rival him whatsoever. And yet they do exercise an influence over humanity. They can do damage to us. Uh, prowling about the world again, seeking the ruin of our souls. They're seeking to separate us from God and to ultimately uh, bring us to hell. Uh, to ultimately... Um, bring about an eternal separation between a soul and God, its creator. So the God, another thing that maybe is good to note is that God has the devil on an extremely tight leash. There's nothing that the devil does, no influence that he can have that God doesn't permit, that he doesn't allow. God has everything in hand. What are the devils limited to? They try to manipulate and to control us. They try to tempt us and sort of drag us away from God, but they're limited in what they can do to a human being. So the first thing that we want to say about the way that the devil can affect us, this limited capacity, but it is a real capacity, is the devil can't act on our higher faculties. In other words, our like immaterial soul. So like your intellect and your will. The devil cannot act directly on those. Those are set aside by God. They're like his sanctuary. However, the devil and demons do indirectly try to influence both your intellect and your will. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. What they do have direct access to are our lower faculties and uh, our external senses. So you have like your five external senses, you know, you're seeing and you're smelling and you're tasting and, you know, touch, et cetera. And then you've got your, what are called internal senses. We're getting kind of now into um, uh, a, an anthropology, a, a sort of a description of the human person, which I think is particularly, um, was particularly described or, um, kind of summed up in the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas. We have internal senses. And the kind of the chief among those that the devil tries to attack are our memory and our imagination. Those are internal senses that we have. They're part of our lower faculties. So he does have direct access to those. So our five senses, external senses, where we interact with the material world, our internal senses like memory and imagination, and also our passions, which are found in what are called our sense appetites. So these are our, our passions. Other times we could describe them as emotions. These are sort of the, the driving force that uh, propel us towards certain things, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, but the devil has direct access to those as well. We'll describe in just a moment how he actually um, manipulates these and, uh, you know, seeks to, to cause us to, to sin or to be separated from God, to be discouraged, etc. So the devil and demons use our bodies along with our senses, uh, with our senses, excuse me, along with our, our emotions and our memory and our imagination to overpower, as it were, the intellect and will in order to cause us to ruin our souls by sin. 
Before we look at the exact way that this happens, a question might arise uh, for you. Uh, why would God allow them any access? We've said that God has restricted them, that God has everything in hand, and that anything that the devil or demons do is only done uh, with God's permission. Uh, they're not sort of able to go around God or whatever. Everything God has in hand. So the question is, why would God allow any demonic influence at all, even a limited influence on his people? Well, God uses the devil and demons for his own purposes. And by allowing us to experience a limited degree of um, a ba this battle, you know, over our souls, uh, God actually contributes to the strengthening, to our spiritual strength. We're made stronger because we face the enemy. By allowing us to face some temptation and the way that he affects us, he forces us to summon our spiritual resources that he's given to us, to put our trust more in him uh, and also to, to fight. Uh, and if we don't do this, we could become spiritually lazy and anemic. An analogy might be this, that if you were not to exercise or exert yourself much, push yourself, uh, soon you become flabby, weak. I'm told that in space, like for astronauts, when they're in a zero gravity environment, that their muscles begin to atrophy and they have to be very careful. They have to do uh, quite a few exercises every day where they're doing, where they're introducing kind of resistance into um, into their into their workout basically because there's no gravity they have to introduce uh, artificial like resistance in order to keep their muscles strong basically in order to keep keep their muscles the way they they ought to be otherwise they just begin to like disintegrate the same is true for our souls if we don't have resistance if we don't have to fight if we don't have to put any effort in we're just sort of spiritual couch potatoes then pretty soon we become ourselves quite weak and vulnerable to attack. And so God allows us to experience some limited um, temptation and, uh, and this, this battle in order to like uh, get us to, I don't know, pull up our socks, so to speak. All right. So how does the devil influence us or affect us? We've said already that he can't directly access or uh, it is no direct influence over our intellect or our will, but our emotions, yes, and our memory and imagination and our five senses. Okay. Uh, well, there are different levels or degrees of demonic um, attack. Uh, so there are, it's divided up into different ways by different people I've noticed. Um, I like this, this, the one that I'm going to give you is seven. There's seven different levels. And I like it because it sort of, uh, it gives, it distinguishes and it kind of shows just the many, it's many of the different ways. Sometimes it's, it's reduced down to maybe two or, th you know, three or four or something. But the seven, I think is helpful because it illustrates that just in a greater, more detail, the different levels. So I'm going to go through them particularly, but first I'll just give you the list. The seven degrees of demonic attack or influence uh, that we've that we can recognize and our tradition recognizes is first infestation, then temptation, 
then what's called vexation or, or uh, dolor, and then oppression, obsession, possession, and then finally subjugation. So we'll say a word just about each of these, right? And I'm going to linger on those that are more common that you and I are more likely to experience because we're all, we all experience the demonic uh, and the devil's um, influence. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll stop on those that are, we're likelier to experience. So the first type that I mentioned is infestation. So this is where the devil or demons acquire a sort of supernatural ownership or authority um, over objects or places or animals. So it doesn't really have to do with human beings here, but infestation is like with a place or with a particular object or even with an animal. And the purpose of these is to um, frighten us, to distract us from what we should be focused on, which is the Lord. And, um, you know, maybe to discourage us, you know, to excite our uh, fascination with evil. You'll notice that people are fascinated by, you know, the devil and exorcisms and all this sort of stuff. Uh, so again, what is the devil trying to do? He's trying to knock us off course and uh, to draw us away from God as much as he possibly can. So infestation is where, you know, a place, an object or an animal is affected. Sometimes you hear about people, you know, with maybe houses or, you know, yeah, like a, like a house particularly or something where, you know, they hear or they see or they smell like things and um, where it's not just a, a natural sort of thing phenomenon in the house, but there's a, a supernatural, you know, quality to it. So the second type of uh, demonic attack is temptation. This is by far the most common way that we experience the devil's influence, his uh, attack, his assault within our lives. So the devil and demons affect us by temptation. You remember maybe two weeks ago that we were talking about the dynamics of temptation. And we said that temptation really is broken up into three parts. This is important because it kind of gives you a sense of how he, how he operates. So the first level of temptation is suggestion. This is where some evil thing is kind of presented to us, either through our senses, our five senses, or through our imagination or through our uh, memory. So suggestion, something is kind of presented to us, to our attention as a, a suggestion. The second stage of temptation, and remember in the first stage, there is no sin in it. It's just something that comes in. So unless you're like negligent and you're kind of putting yourself in a near occasion of sin or you've conjured it up, you've sort of sought it out, uh, there's no sin in it yet. It's just something that's popped into your mind or something that you've come, you've seen or heard or something. The second stage of temptation is uh, desire. This is where those sense appetites that we have, our passions, our emotions are drawn towards that thing. Now this happens in both good things and bad things, but if we're talking about temptation, we're talking about a bad thing. So our passions are inclined often towards things that are bad, that are displeasing to God, bad for us, um, harmful. So uh, desire is where we're drawn towards that thing by our passions. Now, again, there is no sin yet here in it. 
it's simply just the reality of our fallen human nature that we are drawn towards and drawn strongly even towards something that's wrong. And only the third stage does true sin kind of come in, which is where consent is, which is where the will gives in to the suggestion and to the desire of the passions to, you know, the will sort of is overcome and, and gives in. Now the devil, remember, can't make us consent. It has no access to our will. However, uh, the suggestion through our five senses or through our imagination or through our memory, he can. He can suggest things and kind of place things there for us to now consider the beginning stages of temptation. The second thing he can do is he can, again, he has access to our emotions or our passions. So he can strengthen these and make these much stronger and harder for us to resist with our will. So this is how the devil uh, contributes to our temptation. He either suggests things to us or he makes much stronger our passions or uh, weakens our passions, like our good, maybe you could say our good passions. Uh, not, I shouldn't say good passions, but our passions that might be helpful in that particular situation. Passions themselves are neutral, but anyway. Um, now, uh, another, a natural question to ask at this stage would be this. Are all the temptations that we face due to caused by the devil? And the answer is no, no, not at all. Uh, our first four sessions of this, um, this project of spiritual warfare was describing our fallen human nature that we have these inclinations now within us. We have an excessive self-love. We've, uh, we've present often an excessive love of pleasure, like the pleasure of food or the pleasure of sex. We have an excessive desire for, um, for money, excessive love for money, et cetera. You know, I think of the seven deadly sins, the triple concupiscence as St. John calls it. Our fallen human nature is more than sufficient to account for most of our temptations. I'm gonna say that again, because this is like a central truth of Catholic spiritual theology. Our fallen human nature is more than capable of accounting for the most of our temptations. Um, however, it is also true to say that we do have a spiritual enemy uh, who is the devil and the, the demons, and they do contribute to our temptation sometimes. So, you might naturally then ask, well, how do I know that it's, if it's him or if it's just me and my fallen human nature that's tempted by, by something, by some sin? Well, we can't 100% know. Uh, it's hard to just really clearly kind of put your finger down and say, ah, this temptation was from, in fact, the devil. Um, but there are some indicators or signs that might point towards that. So some of those signs that, again, our tradition, our tradition has recognized are things like um, when the temptation comes upon you with, uh, particularly very suddenly and with a, a certain violence, like it's particularly intense, or if it casts the soul into like a deep and prolonged turmoil, that might be another sign that, oh, okay, this might have some element of, of darkness, you know, to it. There must, might be the, 
the demonic here at work. If you notice within yourself certain temptations like a, a, a desire for the spectacular, for kind of, um, for that which is, uh, you know, maybe dramatic, spiritual, you know, dramatics or the, you know, the, the supernatural or preternatural. Um, the other, um, the other, some of the other signs are um, a, a conspicuous kind of like um, a desire for conspicuous mortifications. So things that draw attention to yourself, even like holy things, mortifications, but where you're drawing attention to yourself or there's something kind of, um, you know, maybe spiritual pride that's, that's comes in there. Or if through all of this, you notice a strong inclination to be silent about the whole thing, to hide it, particularly from your confessor or your spiritual director. If you notice these things, these are indications that the temptation that you're dealing with might have a demonic element to it. The third type of uh, temptation is vexation or, or uh, dolor, it's called. Now, this is where some holy people are physically accosted, like saints are physically accosted by the devil or by demons. Uh, now, so I was, I had the opportunity to go to ours once, which is where St. John Vianney was a priest. And in ours, uh, there are still marks from the devil from in like his bedroom, basically, uh, where the devil attacked him physically and uh, tried to like torment him. Again, important to remember, these things happen with God's permission. Why would God allow that to happen to those who are closest to him, to his, his truest friends? Well, um, first of all, for their sanctification, they had to struggle and fight just like all of us do in order to remain faithful, not to be distracted or discouraged by you know, this enemy, but instead to keep your eye on the prize. And they did. And also uh, it's, it's, it's remarked in our tradition that there's a certain divine justice that's being worked out here as well. The humiliation of the devil. So the devil is, and the angels, well, all angels are of a higher, um, uh, of a, a higher type of being, you know, they're, they're purely spiritual. They're endowed with, uh, abilities that are beyond our nature, our human nature. Uh, and yet they are by God's grace being bested and conquered by these lower beings, these saints, you know? So there's a certain, the devil in his pride is being bested and brought low by God through these humble instruments. So there's a divine justice to, uh, to it as well. So vexation or, or, or dolor. The fourth type is oppression. So this is where the demonic attacks things on the outside, things that are around, surround us. So things like maybe your finances or your property, your relationships, your job. Fifth type is obsession. Um, obsession is a more intense type of temptation in which they're, they are us unusually violent or persistent. Uh, and they can have, uh, obsession can have both external and internal elements. So external elements are like, 
if a person sees like apparitions or, or experiences apparitions, sometimes hearing or seeing things or feeling things or et cetera. And their internal elements are where the devil or demons stir up those sensations or emotions, but again, in a much more intense and uh, prolonged kind of a way. So before, another thing that's maybe important now just to, to uh, make an aside is this, that before anyone goes rushing into diagnosing even a case of obsession or any kind of demonic influence, um, like the church is very slow to do that, very slow. And um, the first port of call for someone, particularly if they're dealing with, if they're dealing with like a serious thing, often there's an overlap between um, some medical conditions and psychological conditions that people have and the manifestations of demonic attack. So the first port of call is to like a good doctor, basically. Um, even, you know, when someone who is ultimately uh, found to be possessed, there's a very strict kind of like series of intake interviews and examinations that take place to make sure that like, to look at the nat the possible natural explanations for what the person is experiencing. Uh, because, you know, if it's natural, then they just need, they need a doctor, they need maybe medication, they need um, psychological treatment, uh, or what have you. So before we go rushing in, the church doesn't do that either. So, you know, wise to sort of uh, carefully consider and let those who are particularly expert in this uh, make those sort of diagnoses. So the first port of call uh, is to usually a doctor and then to, you know, potentially like a, a specialist or a psychologist or something. And uh, our tradition recommends, of course, uh, finding uh, good Catholic doctors or good Catholic psychologists um, who are going to, um, you know, who are, who are not going to lead people further astray. And, uh, you know, that is, that is a consideration. So they try to find good ones. Sixth type of the, of demonic attack or, or interaction is what's called possession. So possession is this. Possession is the condition where the devil or demons become present in a person's body. They become present in their body and they exercise a dominion, a control over their body. Although still, even in cases of possession, it still does not, the devil still does not have direct access to your immaterial soul, your will, or your intellect. Now, Generally, those who fall victim to this condition where the devil or uh, demons become present in their body and exercise a dominion, a control over their body, generally people who fall into that condition are um, like regularly living, committing sins, basically committing grave sins. Although this isn't always the case, but apparently that's a, uh, a serious like entryway you know, mortally sinning, mortally sinning, mortally sinning is separating ourselves from God over and over and over again. And uh, we can expose ourselves doing that to, uh, to, the, to our enemy, to the demonic. But again, not always. Sometimes people are possessed and it's just, it's something that has happened. It's not something that they are personally responsible for. Signs of demonic possession. Again, the church doesn't kind of rush in and say, oh, this, this you know, 
this person who's experiencing these sorts of certain things, they're definitely possessed. The church is slow in, in diagnosing that. And the first port of call is, you know, physicians and, uh, you know, psychologists or a good psychiatrist. Um, all of those, the medical and the natural explanations are ruled out before uh, you start to look for, before you're willing to diagnose a, um, a case of possession. Now, there are certain additional signs. Like I said, there's an overlap with some of the characteristics or features of someone who's experiencing possession and someone who's experiencing certain types of medical or psychological conditions. But there are certain um, indicators that you're dealing with a case of possession and not with a psychiatric condition or something. So the signs, there are three that are found in the Roman ritual, which is the where the rite of exorcism was found. And then the fourth is a just something that exorcists and uh, yeah have noted basically, and it's something our tradition has noted. Um, so the three, three or the four signs, let's say, that you might be dealing with a case of demonic possession that they're looking for, um, are the ability to speak in a language that the person doesn't know or couldn't possibly know, or to understand that language. The second is a knowledge of hidden things or of future events, things that the person couldn't possibly know themselves. The third is a display of power beyond the person's age or natural condition. So like, this is like supernatural kind of strength, uh, you know, where someone is, 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 you know, finds themselves stronger than, you know, like, uh, and someone who maybe wouldn't be naturally you know, a child or, you know, like a, a, you know, a frail sort of a person stronger than men who are holding them down. But, you know, the other kind of displays of power beyond that person's age or natural ability would be things like uh, levitation or morphing, you know, which is where a person in some way changes a shape, changes their shape, their, their shape is changed rather. Another sign, and this is the fourth, is an aversion or a hatred of things that are holy. It's like holy water, the crucifix, the saints, saints relics, the holy Eucharist, etc. And the seventh and last uh, type of demonic attack or assault is subjugation. This is where those who are possessed make a pact with the devil. They enter into a kind of um, an agreement with the devil. Right. So how do we fight the devil, right? Um, the first way of fighting the devil, not going to come as a surprise probably to you, is prayer and specifically humble prayer to God. So this makes perfect sense if you think about it, because uh, again, the devil is uh, a has a, a kind of a an, an awful pride, a crippling pride. And so we cut against the devil and his sort of like tactics in his nature. When we humble ourselves before God, we acknowledge our littleness and our need of him, and we put our trust in him with full confidence. It cuts right against the, the, the devil's kind of tactics, right? His playbook. The other thing that we do when we, uh, our tradition kind of encourages us, when we pray uh, and pray humbly and with confidence is to turn to the Blessed Virgin Mary, to turn to St. Michael the Archangel and to turn to St. Joseph, those three in a particular way. Why? Well, first of all, let's start with St. Michael. St. Michael the Archangel is 
himself an angel and we know from scripture was uh, led the armies of God, was responsible for the overthrow of Satan and the fallen angels. Then you have the, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Oh, by the way, St. Michael's name means who is like God, <laughs> which is wonderful. So it's like this direct counter to Satan's claim and desire to be like God. St. Michael's is this humble who is like God, you know? Um, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the most humble and pure and simple and perfect of God's creation. And the most like little wonderful example of faithfulness. She is like the, the Lord delights in conquering Satan through her because of her beautiful humility and her purity and simplicity. So to turn to the Blessed Virgin Mary is a fantastic way to protect yourself, protect uh, your family, and not only protect them, but also, you know, to drive out uh, any darkness from your life. Turn to Mary. And then St. Joseph. Uh, St. Joseph is, again, a wonderful example of simple, humble holiness. This man, this incredible man who trusted God so implicitly and who did what God asked him to do always. Again, the Lord delights in using these humble instruments in order to, uh, to conquer the devil in his pride. Do you know one of the titles of St. Joseph actually is St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Terror of Demons. It's a great title. So go to Joseph, as the, as the, uh, um, the scripture says, go to Joseph. Go to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Go to St. Michael when you pray. And go with real confidence that God delights in using these, this angel and these two saints, these amazing people, uh, in order to uh, protect his flock and to best the devil. The other thing that we have are the sacraments and sacramentals. So we have humble prayer. Now the sacrament and sacramentals. So confession is a powerful weapon against the devil. Why it's also an act of humility. We come humbly before God. And then we're there in confession. We receive in absolution what makes us invulnerable, the grace of God that makes us invulnerable to the attacks of the devil. That's not my words now. That is the words of like our tradition. Absolution, the absolution we receive there makes us invulnerable to the attacks of the devil. Confession is one of the most effective things that you can do in order to protect yourself and also to uh, limit the influence of the enemy. In fact, confession is one of the things, even for someone who's like dealing with a full, where they're dealing with a full-blown possession, uh, confession is, is something that the church recommends even to the person who's, who is uh, possessed. Then you have Holy Communion. Holy Communion brings Jesus Christ into your heart. Christ who triumphed over Satan and who fills the devil with terror. It's him that we bring into our hearts. And one of the the spiritual fruits of Holy Communion is uh, it strengthens us. It strengthens us against temptation and against any of the devil's influence that he could possibly have. 
it solidifies us, right? So Holy Communion and confession. Uh, the sacrament of the sick also has a an efficacy against the against the devil, and of course, like um, baptism. People don't realize, but in baptism, uh, there is a minor exorcism there, where uh, the priests, in Jesus' name, uh, casts out any demon, anything the devil or any uh, any demon, banishes darkness uh, from the person who's going to be baptized. The uh, then you have the sacramentals, right? So these aren't sacraments, but they kind of the sacramentals dispose us to the grace of the sacraments. Um, so things like the humblest things. Uh, sometimes we can overlook things and we can complicate things and say, you know, we want the, we think that it needs to be spectacular. Um, I, I heard recently another priest say about you know Syrian or name in the Syrian who went to uh, went to the prophet of Israel and looking for healing. And the prophet told him to go to the Jordan river and bathe seven times. And he was, it was like disgusted by this thought he was going to get some sort of like a, a much more impressive remedy. And uh, he nearly didn't do it, but like, this was the way that God intended to heal him. So sometimes it can be the most simple things. In fact, God delights in that because of the devil's pride. So things like the sign of the cross and holy water. So the sign of the cross, saints like St. Alphonsus Rodriguez and some of the desert fathers noticed that when they were assaulted by the devil, which they were in an intense way, that when they blessed themselves and invoked the name of God, that the devil fled, right? Why is that? Well, if you think about it, the sign of the cross, where was the devil defeated by Christ? It's on the cross. And then also you're invoking the name, the name of God and, uh, and uh, invoking his protection, his presence and his protection. St. Teresa of Avila was very fond of using holy water uh, in, in any manifestations or attacks that she experienced of the devil. And again, God uses these things that are so humble and simple in order to thwart the devil in his pride. There are other things that um, that are available to us as well. Things like deliverance prayers, uh, which are considered sacramentals. So these are some. There are some books out there that uh, that have deliverance prayers that lay people can say. There are some prayers that only priests can pray, and then there are some prayers that only bishops can pray or priests who have been deputized by their bishops. Um, and it would be not only improper, but it would be dangerous to uh, pray these prayers um, if you are not able to. So if you're a lay person to pray prayers that are reserved for priests or for bishops or those who priests deputize or for priests to say prayers that they're not deputized to, to pray. So if in doubt, maybe a good idea to go to a priest who knows kind of what he's talking about to ask his advice before you dive in head first to things. Again, there are prayers that you can pray for yourself as, as lay people. Um, one of the big things that uh, it seems has, is one of the key issues is the difference between what are called uh, imprecatory prayers and deprecatory prayers. So imprecatory prayers are prayers of command. 
They're prayers where you're in the name of Christ commanding a demon. You're addressing the demon and you're commanding him to leave that person or whatever. And deprecatory prayers are addressing God or addressing Our Lady or addressing St. Michael and asking them to deal with the demon, right? Now, I've heard different things about from different uh, exorcists about this, um, about who can use those imprecatory prayers, those commanding prayers, and who can't. So, uh, because I've heard different things, uh, and I don't want, the last thing I would want is to lead anyone astray, I'm going to recommend what I know to be solid ground, right? Uh, and that is this. My recommendation is to pray those deprecatory prayers, asking Jesus or Our Lady or St. Michael to cast out and protect you or your family from any, from the devil or from any um, demons. If I'm erring, I might be, I might be wrong in this. I might be being overly cautious, but if I am erring, it's on the side of caution here, right? If you are unsure, please just about, am I doing the right thing or not? Please just contact your local priest. Again, those prayers, those deliverance prayers that are in some of those books, which are for lay people, may be fine. But again, my recommendation would be to pray those ones that are deprecatory. In other words, where you're not addressing the demon, but where you're addressing God, Our Lady, or St. Michael, and asking them to, uh, to deal with the, the enemy. The last thing uh, that I, the last kind of resource that we have, by the way, those prayers that are reserved for priests or reserved for uh, bishops and priests whom they deputize are what are exorcisms. Those are exorcisms, right? Properly speaking. Okay, the last thing then is what's called contempt for the devil. So uh, it's so important for us to know that we have the Lord with us and that God is at our side. And so therefore, when we look at the devil, the last thing we do is cower in fear or, you know, shrink back or something like that. No, because we have Christ himself with us, because we have the Lord, we belong to him because of that. We are not afraid and we regard the devil with contempt, with contempt, not with, not by, not with intimidation, but with contempt. Not, not only do we hate him, but we think, little of him. Not that we don't uh, recognize the danger that's there. That's not what contempt means, but we, uh, you know, we look at him with the full confidence of knowing that we have Christ, you know, with us. This is what St. Teresa of Avila says. <clears throat> and I'll finish with this. And then I know there's some questions that I, that people want to have answered there as well, but I'll finish with this quote from St. Teresa of Avila. She says, these cursed spirits torment me quite frequently, but they do not frighten me in the least. For I am convinced that they cannot stir except by God's leave. Let this be known well, that every time we make them the object of our contempt, they lose their strength, and the soul acquires over them greater ascendancy. Listen to this now. They have no power except against cowardly souls who surrender their weapons. Against such do they show their power. They have no power except cowardly souls who surrender their weapons. The Lord has endowed us with many, many weapons, with spiritual resources, prayer and confident prayer, the ability to 
ask the intercession of these most incredible saints, St. Michael, Our Lady, and St. Joseph, sacraments and sacramentals, and then his, his very presence, which allows us to have full confidence facing any enemies. Um, again, like the devil wants to distract us, to, you know, to draw us from the, the path that leads to union with God uh, here and now, but also a consummate union with God in heaven. Uh, and he's given us so many resources in order to, uh, to fight the devil and to persevere, to keep going on. Um, those are our spiritual enemies, the devil and the fallen angels, demons, the, the world, all of those who do not know the Lord, who don't belong to him and are working at cross purposes with him. And then also the, the flesh, our fallen human nature. So that's that. So before we finish up and I'll give you a blessing, they have these, these are some questions that you sent. So, excuse me. The first is, uh, let me see here. Oh, okay. Opinion on demonic tools such as Ouija boards, right? Uh, yeah, Ouija boards and those things. It's important to realize that just because something seems harmless doesn't mean that it is. Um, you know, through what seems to be only innocent entertainment, we can actually expose ourselves to spiritual realities that are not God, right? And uh, it's not to say that everybody who who uses Ouija boards or has has uh, now 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 is dealing with some sort of a demonic um, presence or something, but we are dabbling in things that uh, are dangerous and that we don't understand fully, and we can expose ourselves to things that uh, unwittingly can do us terrible harm, and we don't want to do that. So you know anything that is whether it's entertainment or healing or spiritual practices, anything that is invoking or looking towards uh, spirits that are not God, not his angels uh, and not the saints, stay away from them. And even things that are purportedly, you know, about, you know, angels and things like that, be very careful with stuff like that. Um, look for, uh, find your entertainment elsewhere and then find like your spiritual nourishment within uh, what our, what our family of the church, what Christ has given to us as a family of the church and not what is to be found elsewhere. Because again, we could potentially expose ourselves to all sorts of, uh, uh, of, of awful things. And we don't want to do that. Another question, Reiki question mark. Yeah. Again, Reiki, I think is a, is very cut and dried um, example of, uh, I mean, in addition to presuming a, a an understanding of the human person that is uh, not not Catholic, it's not grounded in you know the the revelation of of Christ. Um, it also reaches out to spiritual sources of quote-unquote healing which are not of god and so again there's there's potential real potential danger there um and it's very clear that's particularly clear reiki that 
uh, it's incompatible with a committed Catholic faith. And so uh, to stay away from it, that's very, it's very clear. Um, and the church, not like the Vatican or anything, but the church at a much more local level has, uh, has spoken very strongly about practices like Reiki. Thoughts on yoga. So yoga is, uh, there's, there's a debate within uh, Catholicism. So I'll just acknowledge that there's a debate. There are some people who are convinced that yoga can be stripped of all of its spiritual content and made into simply a kind of like a gentle exercise. And some people have sought also to, so to quote unquote, baptize yoga, in other words, to kind of make it into something that's Christian friendly. I, so I'll tell you first of all, what the church has made very clear, and then I'll give you Father Shane's little take on it. Okay. So what the church has made very clear is that yoga in its uh, spiritual practice, you know, yoga is a, 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 a spiritual practice of Hinduism mostly. Um, but as it is, as a spiritual practice, it is incompatible with uh, a, with the Catholic faith, with a, with a, a commitment to Christ. And it's a first commandment issue. In other words, it's a, a way that we can um, commit idolatry or at least what's called syncretism, which is where we're kind of synthesizing uh, or attempting to synthesize in a way that's impossible. A, um, a faith that is not Christianity with the gospel, with what Christ has taught. So, in as it is, as yoga is in its spiritual practice, it is incompatible with um, Christianity. Can yoga be stripped of its spiritual content? I've looked into this and um, I have my doubts. I have my doubts. I think if it can, it can only be, it's, it's going to take more time to be honest with you. And I'll explain why I say that in a moment, but um, I, there are, there's, there's a, there's different kind of opinions about what the poses of yoga mean. Um, and, you know, are they simply just postures and just physical things or are they imbued endowed with a meaning in yoga however you even understand however you understand it even as like an exercise are they just inherently endowed with a meaning that connects them to um hindu deities or or uh spiritual realities from other eastern traditions uh and therefore there's still some sort of a connection there that the christian could be unwittingly exposing themselves to uh, I also think just on a practical level, if there are alternatives, why would you expose yourself potentially to something that has a question mark over it? Like if you can do something different, there are other exercises you can do, which are gentle stretches, uh, low impact exercises, uh, which are not, have no spiritual background whatsoever. And so therefore there's no question as to whether they're you know, problematic or not. So things like Pilates, for instance, not that I, I'm certainly no expert on Pilates, but like um, gentle stretching, 
that has no spiritual content whatsoever. So I wonder why, why would you do that if there's any sort of question mark over it at all? The last thing I'll say about yoga is someone might say, well, particularly in Ireland, you know, lots of our Christian places of pilgrimage or practices were pagan. And, you know, we took those and we made them our own. We baptized them, so to speak. So like Kirkpatrick or Holy Wells or, you know, some of our other pilgrimage sites. Well, those, first of all, two things. Number one is those who were pagans in Ireland had to break in a radical way with their paganism in order to give themselves to Christ. And so there was a, there was a, a, a leaving of that uh, initially, and they, they really had to make a break with their, their past um, allegiances and spiritual uh, practices. To connect that to today, our world is, is departing from faith in the true God and in the gospel. And we're going in the wrong direction. And so leaning into those things that are, uh, have their, their origins in the East or in, not in the East in general in particular, but in, that have their origins in other religions I think it's, it's moving against the way that we ought to be going. And the other thing about those pagan kind of pilgrimage sites and, and things that we've Christianized here in Ireland, for instance, or elsewhere, is that it took a long time to do that. It took a long time for our culture to shake off the paganism and to be able to approach these things and, you know, in a way that wasn't, um, that wasn't in some way uh, compromising the faith. It takes a long time to kind of work these things out, basically. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, yoga is a very recent, um, has been recent, very recently introduced to the West. And uh, yeah, I just, I'd be very skeptical that it can be um, appropriated this quickly. If, if at all. So um, again, it comes down to this for me. In its spiritual practices, the church is very clear. It's incompatible with, with Christianity. And as far as exercises and stuff are concerned, my, my take would be, why would you do it if there are alternatives out there that don't have that question mark? And also, you know, maybe the last thing to consider is the, the possibility of scandal. You know, like if you're a believer, if you're a sincere believer and you're doing any sort of practice that maybe in your mind is fine. Uh, or maybe it's not even in your mind. Maybe it is fine, but it has the potential to lead someone else to things that are not uh, compatible with Catholicism. It can be a stumbling block to someone coming to faith and leaving behind maybe the things that they need to leave behind. That's a scandal is. There, there, there's a, there's a, uh, a risk of scandal there too. You know that someone could kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "Oh, I guess yoga is fine for, for Christians to do," you know, because of our example. 
So I think we want to by our words and our actions, by what we do and the way we live. Uh, we want to lead people closer to the Lord and away from those things that are compromising, that are compromising their commitment to the faith and to, to God. So anyway, that's that. Uh, he, I'm wondering about healing ministries. In other words, like faith healers and also the practice of lay people praying over people or lay people laying hands on imposing hands on other people. Okay. So two things there, the faith healers, I never heard of faith healers before I came to Ireland, <laughs> but they seem to be all over the place here. You know, these people who supposedly have these gifts of, of healing, etc. And then, you know, I hear people say like, Oh, but this one is like, uh, they say prayers when they do it or whatever. Um, I would just be really slow to, uh, to turn to someone who is supposedly healing as a, as some sort of spiritual as is doing something spiritual. And that is, uh, who is supposedly healing, um, and, and healing by means of like a spiritual gift or force or something like that. I would just be very slow to, uh, to go to someone like that, that, um, just because I've heard that, you know, um, does God people give some people the gift of healing? I think that's very, very, very clear, but, um, yeah, I'd be very slow. And I, I, my, my litmus test is always this. I think about like, what would I recommend for my siblings, for my sisters and brother, or what would I recommend, you know, for what would I want their priest to tell them? And, uh, it's very clear. I would recommend, and I would tell them, stay away from that. Find something elsewhere. Do you know what I mean? If you, uh, you know, if you want to have, uh, if you want to go to like the local healing night, uh, healing nights that your parish church has, great. Where there's adoration and you know uh, prayers of you know you're asking for God's healing, etc. Awesome. That's fantastic. But just going to some random people who claim to have some sort of a spiritual gift or ability. I don't know. I, uh, I think there's, there's sufficient questions where I would, I would steer clear of that. As far as lay people imposing hands on others, uh, this is a debate that's come up very recently in the church or it's maybe, maybe it's always been there, but it's come up more recently than in the past. Um, and I, uh, I'm not, I'm not dodging it, but I'm acknowledging simply that, uh, I haven't looked into this sufficiently where I could give like a really solid, good answer. So I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to just opine about something that I, I haven't looked into at all. Um, so I'm going to have to leave that. I'm sorry. I can't give uh, better direction there. Could you say the, our father or hail Mary while engaging in yoga exercise, or would that be considered inappropriate? So again, I think that there, that's a, you know, that comes from a desire to Christianize yoga. And my, you know, I question whether that's possible. Um, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's possible. And also, uh, again, I go back to just like a really practical thing. Like if you can find an alternative that there's no question mark on, why not? You know, I would just do that. Um, and then go ahead and pray during your Pilates or whatever. That's, that's fine. 
And then someone, uh, someone just wrote, uh, the poses are a form of physical worship. So that's something that I've definitely come across that, um, that claim and that those poses are, you know, just by virtue of how they're constituted, et cetera, are, um, and their, their history are, you can't strip them of their, that meaning. Um, I don't know. Uh, there are people who to debate that as well. But uh, again, it comes down to me of like, uh, why would you expose yourself potentially to something that was spiritually harmful or lead other people astray? Um, you know, why would you do that? There are alternatives out there. Do the alternatives. Uh, you don't want to mess with anything that is going to be harmful to your salvation. Like what's more important, your exercise or heaven? Like find a different kind of exercise. Anyway, that's my, uh, you know, kind of thoughts on it, which aren't, um, you know, again, I've really, I've, I have sunk my teeth into some of those things uh, because obviously these are, these are questions that come up very regularly, uh, you know, for people of faith in, in the, the Western world. So what we'll do is we'll just ask God's blessing and uh, finish up. And then, um, and then I'll give you a, a blessing, you and your families. So we pray together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.